It has certainly been a wonderful blessing for me and a great delight to be with you for this meeting this year. Um, so happy to be back in a place where I've enjoyed so many wonderful blessings in years past. I remember 44 years ago this weekend is uh, when I accepted the pastoral care of this church back in 1979, been 44 years. Enjoyed uh, some of the um, one, most wonderful blessings in my life during the time I was with you, and I appreciate Brother Chris still having me back from time to time. Such a delight to be with him. Appreciate Sister Bean, Brother Matt's kind hospitality and taking care of me and the hospitality and care of the church here uh, since this meeting started. I'd like to speak to you this morning on three arcs that's found in the Bible. There's the Ark of Noah, the Ark of Moses, and the Ark of the Lord. We begin over here in the sixth chapter in the book of Genesis, and in verse 8 it says, And Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Then it says, These are the generations of Noah. This is the third generational um, section in the book of Genesis. It says, Noah was a just man, perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Now, Noah had a great-grandfather that walked with God. His name was Enoch. Enoch, of course, was translated and taken home to be with the Lord in heaven at the young age of 365. I say at the young age because everyone uh, in that list there, uh, the ages are given just prior to that. Uh, everyone else lived at least 700 and some, most 800 and some, and several 900 and some. So his great-grandfather lived the shortest life. But his grandfather was Methuselah. He lived the longest life. He lived to be 969. Now, Noah didn't quite make that, but he, I think, was 950, if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, we found that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord because the world at this time had become extremely wicked and evil, and God had purposed to destroy the world that's referred to as the world of the ungodly. In 2 Peter 2 and 5, he says, He spared not Noah, uh, uh, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, and brought in the flood upon the world of the ungodly. Here Peter describes that world from Adam to Noah as the old world and the world of the ungodly. And please God to destroy this world with the exception of Noah and his family, his wife, his three sons, their daughters, eight people. He would deliver and spare them. He was a just man. He was a perfect man in his generations. And again, he walked with God. Look at the first verse of chapter 7. You'll find where the Lord speaks to him. He says, I have found thee righteous in my sight. So when I look at the character of Noah, I can see why he's listed with two other men in the book of Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel 14, 14, down through verse 20, twice, the Lord said, if these three men, which was Daniel, Job, and Noah, lived in that day, they would be delivered because of their own personal righteousness, but he would deliver no one else. He would not deliver anybody else for their sake. He'd just deliver them. It shows what a terrible time it was in Ezekiel's day. But for him to be listed with Daniel and Job uh, tells you a lot about this man. Noah's name is mentioned 50 times in the Bible, and Noah is recorded in nine books of the Bible, again adding significance to the man that we're talking about. So we see that Noah was of outstanding character, and it shows you can live a godly and righteous life in even when there's great wickedness that surrounds you and great evil that's all around you. Uh, just keep on keeping on being what you're supposed to be. So anyway, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. 
And the Lord's going to destroy the old world, the world of the ungodly, with a flood. So he instructs Noah to build an ark. Now, there never been an ark prior to this. So God gives him the blueprint. God gives him the plan and the materials. He says you'd make an ark out of gopher wood. And it's really difficult uh, you know, to determine exactly what gopher wood was. But whatever it was, it was what was needed. And Noah didn't have the right to make any changes to this blueprint. He, didn't, he couldn't come back and say, well, Lowe's has got a sale on oak wood. I think I'll use oak. No, God said build an ark out of gopher wood. It's to be three stories. You're to have a window on top and a door in the side. And you shall pitch it within and pitch it without. The Hebrew word for pitch here actually is a word uh, that is translated propitiation. Propitiation is used once in the New Testament, having reference to the atonement work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Noah got busy building that ark. And the Bible's going to tell us four different times that Noah did all that God commanded him to do. In some ways, Noah is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. His name actually means rest slash comfort. These are two words that are synonymous with the Lord Jesus Christ, is it not? Uh, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you what? I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy. Uh, and my yoke is easy and light, and you shall find rest unto your soul. And we know he is the God of all comfort, as we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So his name means rest slash comfort, uh, tying, tying him in with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he done all that God commanded him to do. He got busy and built the ark. And uh, there's no testimony in the word of God as to what, uh, of Noah pleading with anybody else about the ark and what was coming. Uh, he just did what God told him to do. Remember at this point, he had never rained upon the face of the earth. He had never seen a raindrop. God had watered the earth by mitts that came up from, from the ground. And so Noah is to build this ark for him and seven other people. This ark is for eight people and eight people only. Now, uh, he tells him to bring the different animals on the ark. And it's been calculated this ark could hold 125,000 animals. It, uh, could contain enough uh, animals that it would take 500 uh, railroad boxcars to hold all the animals that would go on this ark. This ark was 450 feet in length. It was uh, 75 feet in, feet in width and 45 feet high. So it's very large. If you ever go up and see the uh, ark in Kentucky, when you first uh, come around the bend, so to speak, and you get your first sight of it, it's pretty awesome to see just what a large structure uh, this ark was. So it took Noah a long time to build the ark, but he built it exactly like God told him, according to the dimensions, used the right materials, etc. And so the day would come that he would tell Noah to bring his family onto the ark, and then the animals. He was to bring the clean animals in by sevens, the unclean by twos. And the reason the seven for the clean is when he come off that ark later on after the flood, he would have animals to sacrifice to the Lord and still have animals to reproduce and replenish the earth. And the Lord gave him the instructions later on to do exactly what he told Adam to do, be fruitful, multiply, and replenish the earth. That's the one thing I can come up with that man's been very successful at uh, in life is being fruitful and replenishing this earth. He's done a pretty good job of that. But anyway, this ark, it had three stories once again. And I believe there's really three distinct dispensations of time taught in the Word of God. 
I believe it's the time from Adam to Moses and from Moses to the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and from the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ in the end of time. In each of these dispensations, more light, more understanding of God and God's work and God's purpose and God's grace has been revealed unto mankind. Now, God revealed some things from Adam to Moses, but not as much as he did from Moses to Christ or we've had since the first coming of Christ to the second coming of Christ. There was a time when people didn't have a Bible. From Adam to Moses, there were no scriptures, okay? God used the, Moses to write the first five books of the Bible. So then the scriptures were, you know, being recorded over a period of time. And we have 39 books of the Old Testament. There was uh, 400 years between the last book, Malachi, and the first book, Matthew, of the New Testament over here. And then the Apostle John closed it out in around 100 A.D. since the time we've had a complete Bible. The point is in each dispensation there was more light, more understanding, more revelation of God, God's wisdom, God's mystery, God's purpose, His good pleasure, etc. Uh, than it was in the previous dispensation. Remember this ark has got one window and it's at the top. So when they looked out, they looked up. It's always important to look up, you know, so God rather have you looking up than looking down. It was a lot better view up than it would have been down if that window had been in the bottom of the ark. We see all the death and all of everything that was going on in that flood and God's judgment. Um, so one window, so the greatest amount of light came into the upper story, the little lesser light came to the middle story, and then the least amount of light came down into the very bottom story. Uh, some light got all the way down, but again, the least amount of light would be on the bottom next degree of light in the middle, and the greatest degree of light would be up top. And so we live in the third dispensation, and we have more light and the opportunity for more understanding than anybody who's ever lived upon the face of this earth. We have a complete Bible. We have the Church of the Lord Jesus Christ that was established in the ministry of our Savior. We have His kingdom. Uh, we have the Spirit of God to assist us in our prayer life, to assist us in our study life to bring things to our, our remembrance, bring things to our understanding, et cetera, et cetera. So we live in the most blessed of the three dispensations, at least from that perspective. Now, uh, there was just one door on the side, and when God told Noah and them to come in, they came in, the animals came in, and somebody says, well, uh, how did Noah round up all those animals? It, it was very easy. Uh, God just simply put the will in the nature of those animals to follow Noah onto that ark. It's just that simple. No, no big deal here. Uh, that's the way God did it. And so they all came onto the ark. Um, you know, so they're all on there. And then the Bible says that God shut the door and God shut them in. And he shut them in and then that ark, they was gonna have a refuge and a sanctuary from a universal flood. It was universal sin, worldwide sin, a worldwide judgment, and a worldwide flood. This was not a local flood. It was a worldwide flood. Evidence of that has been seen through, you know, through honest uh, observation and excavations and things uh, since that time. Evidences of a worldwide flood are, are everywhere. It's worldwide, in other words. <laughs> so uh, this is a judgment on this ungodly, wicked world in that day. But God had mercy upon Noah and his family. He found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Now. Uh, we find that ark provided a shield, a covering, uh, a refuge again from the flood that was going to come on that. 
And we see over here in the book of 1 Peter 3, 20, 21, where Peter speaks about the log suffering of God that existed in the days of Noah, where in few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. So here's a biblical definition of the word few. Few is eight, according to this. There was few, uh, eight people, and they were saved by water. Now, they were saved from the water in the ark. They were saved by the water because the water destroyed the world, the ungodly, and the evil all around them. So they had the water uh, gave them a deliverance, and they were delivered from the water by the ark. And he saw a picture, Peter saw a picture of baptism in this. And he says, uh, for even so now, the like figure, even baptism, doth now save us. That ark provided a now salvation, just like baptism provides a now salvation for God's people, a salvation in time. And uh, this is very important for God's people to understand that to every subject in the Bible, there's always two phases. And it's certainly true when it comes to salvation. There's eternal salvation, and then there is time salvation. And I don't mind using the expression time salvation because it's salvation while I live here in time, so I don't see a problem with that. So you got eternal salvation, you got time salvation, and baptism doth now save us. When I was baptized at 19 years old, I received a blessing, I received a deliverance, uh, I received a salvation. That's what the word saved or salvation means, it means deliverance. If you'll always keep that in mind and substitute the word deliverance or the word saved, it'll help you in the context, I think. So I received a, a deliverance, a salvation, when I was baptized, um, I went under the water, and I come up out of the water. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. When this worldwide flood came, the entire world, the entire earth was covered with water. The entire world was immersed in water, but the ark came to the top, you might say, or floated on top. The ark was not designed for navigation. The ark was designed for flotation. That's all needed just to be able to float. And that's what it did. It floated. <laughs> it stayed on top of the water. In this, Peter saw a picture of baptism. The wicked world, the earth, was totally immersed, but the ark came up on top. Now, when I baptize somebody, I put them beneath the water, and I bring them up. I've never lost anybody yet. So far, so good, okay? So if you're concerned about Brother Chris or me or some of these ministers and letting you go, believe me, there's only so much water back here behind me. I can assure you, you can stand up and you're going to be okay. So if you've ever hesitated from being baptized because of fear of water, I'm just trying to move that out of your mind right now. I've never lost anybody, but I have made sure to get them under the water two times I've had to double dip. <laughs> Twice. One of them's here or in this church, but anyway, he's not here this morning, I don't think, but anyhow, I had to double dip him, and I told him, I said, now listen, James, oh, let it out, I said, listen, James, I said, uh, I got all day, uh, you better cooperate, or we're going to miss be up here a long time, so he took me from a word, and I got him all the way under, and got him back up, and everybody was fine. Then I baptized a brother up at Bethel who weighed about 275, it took me twice to get him under, but I got him under, so... If I have to double dip, I'll double dip or double chip or whatever it takes to get people underneath. But you're going under. You're going to be totally immersed or we're not coming out of there until you do. So Peter saw a picture of baptism in that and a deliverance and a now salvation. Now, we come over here to the book of Exodus in chapter 2. And we find where there's a husband and wife who have two children. 
and they have a daughter and they have a son. And at this time, we find that Pharaoh has issued out a decree that uh, all the male children that are born are to be drowned in the Nile River. Now, he got greatly afraid and concerned at the uh, numbers of the children of Israel in the beginning, and uh, he come up with a plan A, was to put heavier burdens upon them than what they already experienced. But it didn't work, it backfired. And the more burdens he put on them, the more they multiplied. So he's going backwards. So he decides plan B, and that's to get the midwives uh, in the picture. And the midwives, when they went to help the Hebrew women have a child, if it was a male child, they was to see that the male child didn't live. They were to kill the male child. But the Bible says that midwives feared God. Midwives feared God. And they didn't carry out the king's commandment. When the king questioned them on this, they said, well, the Hebrew women are more lively. He said, the time we get there, it's already done. They've already had the child. It's too late to do anything about it. And the Lord rewarded them with houses. I don't know if I know everything's involved in that expression, but to me, it just simply he rewarded them with a wonderful life. He gave them, uh, you know, blessings uh, in their home and in their life and rewarded them for honoring him and fearing him more, the heavenly king, than the earthly king or the higher power than the uh, lower power here upon the face of this earth. So when chapter 2 comes up, there's a husband and wife who have two children, but I think it's very plain that they wanted another one. They knew if that child was a male child, what the king's decree was. Now, this is referred to in Acts chapter 7, also Hebrews chapter 11. And when you read these two, you'll find where in Hebrews 11 in particular, that Moses was born, uh, they saw he was a goodly child. It says, his parents fearing not the king's commandment. Now, uh, I've witnessed in the last three years a fear among God's people that I don't quite comprehend and understand. It really surprised me. I know we went through some turbulent times with COVID, et cetera, but somewhere along the line, you gotta trust God. You gotta put your trust in the Lord. And so Karen and I never changed our lifestyle drastically. We kept on doing what we always did. We took proper protocol and all that kind of thing and tried to use common sense and good judgment. But I felt, Lord, we, we're not gonna forsake the assembly of ourselves together. We're gonna be in the house of God. If I can go to Walmart, I can go to church. If I can go some, to a grocery store, I can go to church. I'll trust being around godly church people more than I will the, the mixture that you run into in all these other places you see. So they did not fear the commandment of the king. So you think about it. They were willing to have another child knowing if it's a male child, the king's commandment is, he's been put into the Nile River. And at this time, Pharaoh has all of his agents. Pharaoh has the... Uh, he has put the responsibility upon all the people to be on the watch, all the people. And when a Hebrew woman has a child, if it's a male child, they would report that. That male child was drowned in the Nile River. So they have a child and they name, they have a child and they nourish him up for three months. The Bible says they hid him for three months. So for three months they've kept him when nobody knows about this, but the time comes when they can't do that anymore. It's not gonna work anymore. They've had him for three months. And so the mother makes an ark out of bulrushes and puts Moses in the little ark. Now we're not given the dimensions of this ark, but it was large enough for a three month old baby to be placed into and covered up. And then she put it down 
by the flags or the brink of the river, that was by the bank of the river, among the reeds along the edge of the river. And then one day Pharaoh's daughter come walking by with her maidens, and she sent the maidens, she spotted this, sent her maidens down there to fetch this ark. Now this is a crucial time in biblical history. This is a crucial time in Israel's history. What's going to happen right here? This is Pharaoh's daughter. This is just not another Egyptian woman. This is Pharaoh's daughter right here. And Pharaoh's daughter sends her maidens down there to fetch it. They bring it back. The Bible says she opened up the ark. She saw a little baby, and the baby cried. What's she going to do? Her father is Pharaoh. Her father's decree is, if it's a male child, he's to be drowned. But the Bible says she had compassion on the child because the baby cried. And the tears of the baby is the first step, you might say, of God delivering this nation out of Egyptian bondage, Egyptian captivity. Moses, who's a three-month-old baby, has been selected by God to bring them out. Now, he's not going to bring them out for 80 years. He's going to spend the first 40 years of his life in Egypt. Now, also standing by is the sister, her name is Miriam, the sister of Moses. And Moses' sister speaks to Pharaoh's daughter and says, what shall be done? Shall I fetch one of the Hebrew women to nurse it? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, do that. So she goes and fetches uh, Moses' mother. Pharaoh's daughter doesn't know this is Pharaoh's mother. Pharaoh's daughter does not know this is Moses' sister that's beside her talking to her. And so she says, yes, do that. So she goes gets uh, uh, Moses' mother and brings, it down, brings her down there. And Pharaoh's daughter tells her to nurse this child and I'll give you wages for it. She's going to get paid for it. It's amazing, isn't it? Miraculous. Uh, uh, no one ever paid me anything, paid me no mind, paid me no attention. That's the only pay I ever got in raising four children. Nobody <laughs> gave me extra assistance or whatever, you know, from the government. Uh, but here the government is going to pay her to raise her own child. And so she does. Now, what does this tell us about Moses' mother? And her father. Now, you read every reference, you'll see the father was just as much a man of faith as she was a woman of faith. And they trust in God. They would decide to have a child under these set of circumstances. They trusted that God would take care of this child, regardless whether it was a girl or whether it was a boy, that God would take care of the child. And God did, did he not? Now, she followed the letter of the law. It was a male child. She put him in the river. <laughs> <laughs> but she put him in an ark of bulrushes in the river, and then she stood a distance by to see what would happen, and she saw the hand of God's providence in the matter. That's what she saw. She saw God miraculously by his wonderful providence deliver her three-month-old baby boy from being drowned. So she was going to see one of two things. She was going to see him drowned, or she was going to see him delivered, and she saw him delivered by the mighty hand of the mighty God of Israel. The one she believed in, the one she trusted in, the one I believe she put her uh, trust with all her heart in as I tried to preach on Thursday night. When Paul, uh, Solomon said in Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to your own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him. And I think that's exactly what she was doing here. She was acknowledging God. He shall direct thy path. I believe God directed her as to what to do to put him in this, this ark here. So we find that this ark 
you know, play, placed, uh, uh, put Moses in a, uh, gave him a refuge here from the decree of the king that all male children were to be slain and put into that Nile River. Now, we come up here to the 25th chapter of the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 25, God's going to have something built called a tabernacle. Now, this tabernacle is going to be uh, special for Israel, and God gives the blueprint for it. And I just want to say this this morning. When God had Noah build the ark, he gave him a blueprint. When God gave Noah uh, the instruction to build the tabernacle, he gave him a blueprint, a pattern. Neither man deviated from the blueprint. They didn't have the right to do it, the authority to do it, and they didn't do it. When Solomon built the temple, same thing. God gave Solomon the instructions, the blueprint, how to build that temple. And he built it exactly according to the blueprint that God furnished. God was the architect of the, of the ark, the tabernacle, and the temple. And they were all built exactly like God said. Every T was crossed, every I was dotted. There was no change, there was no adjustment whatsoever. Now we come to the days of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ said in Matthew chapter 16, Upon this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, the church was built by Jesus. The ark was built by Noah. Another ark was fashioned by Moses' mother. And then we're going to have another ark that we're going to talk about here in just a moment or two. But the tabernacle had a pattern to it, and God showed that pattern to Noah, excuse me, to uh, Moses in the top of the mount. And it's interesting to me how that Moses wasn't around when Noah and the ark was built, but he wrote about it. He was that little three-month-old baby in the second ark. He wrote about that. And he's going to write about this third ark we want to talk about here in just a little bit in Exodus chapter 25. But my point is, people today have no more right to make a change to the pattern of the New Testament church today than Noah did to the ark, that Moses did to the tabernacle, or that Solomon did to the temple. We have the pattern in the New Testament now, I think one of the things that um, people have, have a hard time grasping is that the ark was outward, it was physical. The tabernacle was outward, it was physical. The temple was outward, it was physical. You could see it. You could measure it, one thing and another. So how do you see the church today? Not in the same manner or the same way, but you still see it. You see it by an eye of faith. And you can determine what the church is supposed to look like by studying the Word of God because the New Testament uh, church is revealed in the seven let nine letters of seven churches, three letters to ministers that the Apostle Paul wrote by divine inspiration. You want to see what the church is, how, it's op how to operate it, how it should function, what should be in it. Study those, study the book of Acts, and you'll see the church in operation and the church in action. So when we come here to worship God, we worship just like we did this morning. We can establish by God's word that in his church we're to have congregational a cappella singing. We can establish in this church there to be public prayer. We can establish that in the early church there was the proclamation, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can establish there was a fellowship that was special, a fellowship that was very unique uh, in the house of God and from one local congregation to another of like precious faith who was contending for the same thing. You'll find a people who want to honor God and glorify his name in song, in prayer, the preaching of the gospel, obedience to it, 
being a witness and giving testimony of the things that God has done for you and for me, that's the pattern of the New Testament church. Jesus Christ is the king of it and the head of it. Now, if I were to decide to build a house and I selected somebody to be the contractor, and I said, now here's the blueprints. I want you to build this house just according to the blueprint right here. And I'm going to be gone. How long do you think it'll take to build it? Well, I'm building three months. Okay, well, I'm going to be gone. Worldwide tour for three months. Right. But anyway, I'm going to be gone for three months. Okay. So I'm back in three months. I go to the contract. So is the house built? Yes, the house is built. Let's go take a look at it. So I go take a look at the house. I walk in, and I see a door where it was not in the blueprint. I ask about that. Well, I know it wasn't in the blueprint, but I just felt like it would be a nice addition. Have your door right here. Well, I, I see four windows. The blueprint called for three. Well, you needed more light. Uh, so I decided to take it on my own to put a fourth window in here, you know. Well, uh, this bedroom was supposed to be 16 to 16. How come you make 14 to 15? Well, I didn't think you did that much room. And I thought I'd just adjust it just a little bit. And I said, that's not what I told you. I told you I want this house built according to these blueprints right here. You didn't have the right to make not one single solitary change about that. And I'm not a happy man about it. Now, what do you think about the Lord? How the Lord set up his church, established his church, and people have added to, taken away, not only his church, but his word, added to, taken away, made adjustments, one thing or another, and they all do it in the, in the, under the banner of progress, uh, modern day things, you know. Let me tell you, the Lord established his church where it can function, operate in any generation, in any century, since the beginning of, of the, since 2,000 years ago, when Christ set up his church, upon this church, upon this rock, that we talked about some last night. I'll build my church. It is his church. I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I don't have a right to insert anything, add anything, take away anything, delete anything, adjust anything. I don't have the right or the authority to do that. Now, I just threw all that in extra. There's no charge for that, okay? That's, that's all free. So we go back here to Exodus chapter 25. In Exodus chapter 25, he's going to give instructions to Moses on top of that mount to build a tabernacle. Now, if you look at that tabernacle, when you walked in, uh, that had a, you know, it was rectangular in shape, and you walk in the entranceway to begin with, you're gonna find the first of six pieces of furniture. You're gonna find the brazen altar. Then you're gonna move a little further and you're gonna find the uh, brazen uh, laver there. And then you walk into the tabernacle proper and you walk in on the left side is a candlestick, seven candlesticks. And on the right-hand side, you're going to find a table of shoe bread. And then right here in the middle, uh, you're going to find uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the altar of incense. Then you've got another entranceway, which goes into the most holiest of holy. The first place is called the holy place. The second place is called the most holy of holies. And there you find something called the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant had several names to it. There was the Ark of the Covenant, Ark of the Lord, Ark of God, Ark of the Lord God, Ark of the Lord's Strength, and the Ark of Testimony. These are all the same thing. And you're going to find the Ark of the Covenant as item number six. Now, there's a seventh thing here. Seven is number of completion, perfection, and that is the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant. That was God's seat. That's the only seat in this tabernacle. There's no chair for the priest or the high priest to enter in. And once a year on the Day of Atonement, the high priest was going to the holiest of holies, 
And he went in there with the blood of the animal that was slain back here on the brazen altar. And he took of that blood and he sprinkled it seven times upon the mercy seat. Again, number seven. It's sprinkled. It's not poured. It's not spilt. There's one hymn that we sing sometimes. We eliminate things. Verse two, where it speaks about how Christ spilt his blood. Salvation is not by accident. I never spilt anything on purpose. Did you? But I have spilt a few things, not many, but a few things, accidentally, you know. And uh, anyway, but I've never spilt anything that I know on purpose. Christ didn't shed his blood accidentally. He shed it on purpose. So he didn't, uh, you know, he sprinkled that blood. He didn't pour the blood because the atonement work of Jesus Christ is not a general atonement. That would picture that. The Lord's people, the Lord's church believe in... Uh, the atonement of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they believe it's a special atonement. They believe it's a unique atonement for a people that God gave Christ before the foundation of the world. We believe in particular redemption, not general redemption, but particular redemption. So that blood was sprinkled. That's why Peter uses the word sprinkle over here when he writes in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1. You know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He goes forth there and speaks about the the blood that was sprinkled, because the Jews understood what sprinkling was all about. It was used numerous times in the Old Testament day. So that uh, Ark of the Covenant has a mercy seat on it, and it fits perfectly. It doesn't overlap. It doesn't come up short in any way. It's a perfect fit. It's God's seat. The priest never sat down because the work was not finished. They always had to come back year after year after year and to make atonement and this all was pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Many priests operate in the Old Testament day. There were priests, there were high priests, but there's only one great high priest that's mentioned to us in Hebrews chapter 4, and that's the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our great high priest. Now, I love the way it reads. He says, seeing we have a great high priest that's passed into the heavens, let us hold fast our profession. Now, there's... Twice in the book of Hebrews, you're told to hold fast your profession, a good reason given to it. Here's the first one. Seeing we have a great high priest, not a priest, a high priest, but a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, let us hold fast our profession right here. If he's passed into the heavens, he's not here in a barred tomb. If he's passed into the heavens, he's no longer walking the shores of time. He's not buried somewhere on this earth. If he's passed into the heavens, he was resurrected. He, we believe in a victorious Savior, a risen Savior, a reigning Savior, one day a returning Savior. So let us hold fast our profession when we consider this great high priest that we have here. Only one's called a great high priest, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So the priest would go in there. Well, we're going to find where Moses gives instructions how to build each one of these articles of furniture. So he starts with the one, the Ark of the Covenant first. If you walk in and observe them, it's the last thing you see. But he doesn't start with the last. You know, I mean, uh, he starts uh, with the last, but he mentions it first. His instructions first. Now, it was 45 inches in length, 27 inches in depth, 27 inches high. A little smaller than this communion table, I suspect. I'm sure this communion table is a little bigger than that, but just to give you a, a little idea. And on the inside of that, we find three things that was placed. If you go back to Exodus chapter 16, where we were speaking to some last night about the manna, here's the last thing God told Moses to tell the people. He said, you take an omer of manna and you put it into a pot 
and you lay it up in the ark of testimony for generations to come so that they might see how I fed you when you were traveling in the wilderness. It was to be a testimony. That manna is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as our bread of life as recorded in John chapter 6. Now they ate that manna, as I mentioned again last night, and they died, but it was meant to sustain them in their earthly journey. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the bread of life. He came down from heaven to give life to the world of his children, the world of his elect, and they shall never die. Aren't you glad about that? We got something better than earthly manna. We got heavenly manna that came down from heaven in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that pot of manna is called the golden pot of manna. And that mercy seat, by the way, was made out of pure gold. Uh, the articles of the, of the furniture in the tabernacle were made out of shittim wood, which is kind of like a cedar or a fir tree as far as being corruptible. It's kind of incorruptible. It doesn't rot one thing or another. And that pictures the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ came to this world, and he had a body of flesh and blood like you and I, but there was no sin in his nature. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life, a righteous life, and a holy life. And so it was made out of shittim wood, but it was overlaid with pure gold. That's a picture of his divinity, uh, his royalty, his divinity, you know, his deity. And so the Lord Jesus Christ in his earthly life was the son of man. He was also the son of God. He wasn't half God or half man. He was all man and all God. And that's a great mystery. Uh, but it's really one that uh, gives a lot, of, a lot of enjoyment in studying out. And, and, you know, it's a great mystery, as Paul told Timothy. Without controversy, great is the mystery of God. It's God manifest in the flesh. So he tells them to build the Ark of the Covenant and what to put into it. And so we have the golden pot of manna. Then we have the two tables of the law. Remember what happened to those two tables of law the first time God gave it to them? He gave it to a man called Moses. Moses came down the mountain he heard the noise, what he, Joshua thought was the noise of war, but Moses knew better. It was the noise of the people down there who were eating and drinking and making merry and just having a, a party, and they were dancing around a golden calf that Aaron had made. When Moses called him on the carpet, this is the excuse of all excuses. Now, I've heard some dillies. You know, I've heard some dillies, my friends, but this is right at the top. He said, well, you know, uh, uh, the people just uh, how they are, they cast their earrings in the fire, and all of a sudden this golden calf jumped out, you know, just, just came out. I heard a, man, uh, a woman tell a preacher one time, she said, I just can't come to church, uh, I'm, I'm a child, and, and your preaching is so loud, it's hurting the ears of my baby. That's the truth. I didn't just make that up. That's the truth. That was her excuse to not come to the house of God. And I know this preacher, he don't even preach loud to begin with. But his preaching was so loud, it was, it was hurting the ears of her baby inside her womb, so she couldn't come because of that. People ought to just tell the truth, you know, and just say, I'm not coming because I'm not interested. Uh, they'll just tell the truth about the matter instead of making up some lie like that. But anyway, we get back over here. There's the two tables of the law. He had to give them twice. The second time, he put them in the Ark of the Covenant because the Ark of the Covenant is a, the Ark of the Lord, a representation of the Lord Jesus Christ who kept the law to a jot and to a tittle. And then there was a third item. It was Aaron's rod that budded. And you can go back and study the story about all that. But his rod, came, life came out of a lifeless stick. And it budded, brought forth blooms, blossoms, and fruit. And the Lord Jesus Christ uh, lived the life here. He came to this world. He didn't you know, come down as a man. He was born here as a little baby. 
He lived 33 and a half years here. I think he represented his children every age and every phase of life. And his life was a fruitful life because all that the Father gave him, he says, I shall lose nothing but raise it up again at the last day. We believe in eternal security. We believe in eternal preservation. And the Lord's people have been saved and preserved by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all that's there in that ark. Now, we close this morning with this final thought. Each of these arcs was a shield from, from the raft of some type of wrath. The Noah's ark shielded Noah and his family from the wraft of God. The judgment of God bringing from the flood of the ungodly. Noah was shielded in that ark of bulrushes from the wrath of a heathen king named Pharaoh. And this ark over here, I'm talking about the ark of the covenant. It's got the golden pot of manna, two tables of the law, and Aaron's rod that budded represents the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a shield from the wrath of God that's coming at the end of time. Romans 5, 9. Being justified, therefore, by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Proper wrath, godly wrath is coming at the end of time. Only the wicked and the evil will be affected by it. You have been shielded by the blood of Jesus Christ, by his life, and God sees you through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is seen righteous, godly, and, and uh, holy uh, before God because he is your representative. He sees you through him. Aren't you happy and thankful for that?